everyone before we jump into this um, I normally do this at the end of a video but I'm really excited about this we have new merch in the Teespring store for the Mr. Davis Investigation Agency I've wanted to give this community a name for a really long time and I thought this was a fun and clever little idea so if you want to become part of the MDIA become an agent for us just head down to that link at the bottom of the description, or sorry, at the top of the description, and um, pick you up a hoodie, a t-shirt, whatever. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and let's get right into the video. Chesterfield, a town in New Hampshire with just below 4,000 residents, is home to one of their biggest mysteries. It began in February of 2001. Bethany Sinclair and her mother Tina were living at Tina's boyfriend's house on Mountain Road in Chesterfield. Tina's boyfriend, who goes by Van, was a former Marine and regarded as a highly placed supervisor at the Vermont Yankee Power Plant. He also had a short record with the police, notably a sexual assault case on a child in 1991. That case wasn't solved until 2001, and while he was set to serve up to 15 years, he was released in October of 2007. Sharon, Tina's sister, has said that the memorial that was set up for the women was stolen just a few days later, and Van was reportedly seen in the area, but he claims to have no connection. Van's relationship with both of the women seemed to be turbulent at the least. From an article in August of 2001, we can see that Tina had a few relationships with abusive individuals, and according to a source close to the family, Van was no different. The article references a specific incident where Van allegedly covered her in kerosene and attempted to light her on fire. I have to say allegedly, because Van was never charged with abuse of any kind. But it would seem that February 4th, 2001 would be Tina's breaking point. According to Van, who was interviewed after Bethany hadn't shown up to school, him and Tina had an argument on the 4th. It was then he left the house, only to return some time later and find that the girls were gone. All of their clothing was missing, but Tina's car, a majority of their personal items, and her 15-year-old cat were left behind. The girls had never been heard from again. They weren't reported missing until the 10th by Van. Van was one of the last people to have contact with either of the women, but Bethany had a phone call with her boyfriend the night before their disappearance. On the call, they talked about upcoming plans for Valentine's Day, and Beth's boyfriend had even bought her a ring as a present. There was no indication the women had plans to leave. The case only gets more complex from here, though. On the 5th of February, the day after the women went missing, an unidentified woman called Beth's school to tell them she wouldn't be in today because she was sick. The caller's ID is still undetermined. As per usual, the police looked to Van as a suspect. In any investigation, the spouse is one of the first suspected, though they're usually ruled out sometime later. This wasn't the case with Van. According to Tina's sister Sharon, she and Tina got into a heated argument in October of 2000 regarding Van's record of sexual assault. Sharon suggested that Van could have been molesting Beth behind Tina's back and offered to let the two of them stay with her in Connecticut. 
Tina declined and told Shannon she'd leave Van on her own. Sharon has also said that Tina's plans may have played a part in her eventual disappearance. Unfortunately, at this time, we have no answers. The investigation continued on for months, with articles from May, July, and August all coming up in my research, but none bring any more information. The article from July specifically was notable as the headline reads, Two Bodies Taken from a River Over Weekend. Reading through, you can see that it was the body of a man, Donald Cheriter, who drowned while trying to cross the Connecticut River, and the other was of a woman who was seen floating by a local fisherman. Of course, Tina and Beth's names were mentioned, and the autopsy was said to have been done the following day, but with no reports of either of the women after this point, leads me to believe it was neither of them, but rather another incredibly unfortunate young woman who lost her life. While on the topic of the Connecticut River, it's worth noting that it did run behind Van's home. Along with this, he was reportedly seen driving a yellow scat hovercraft around 4.30 in the morning on February 4, 2001, the same day everyone lost contact with Tina and Beth. The property has been searched thoroughly, even with cadaver dogs, and the river has been dragged, but unfortunately there is no sign of the girls anywhere, and while foul play is suspected, no one can be tied to the crime. Sharon hasn't given up hope, though. The most recent report I can find on the case is from a 2007 article where Sharon said she is in contact with a private investigator to give the case a new set of eyes. Let's hope something comes out of it. In the meantime, if you do have anything you believe can help the police in this case, don't hesitate to report it. You can call the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663. You can also email them at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Tammy was a young woman from Exeter, New Hampshire. On the day of her abduction, that being the 13th of November 1984, she was just 8 years old. The morning of the 13th, Tammy left her home, located on River Street, to walk to school on Lincoln Street. She was in third grade. The walk was only about a mile, and reportedly she'd made the walk alone since she was in first grade. By 8 a.m., Tammy had made it to Court Street. This was verified by a neighbor who saw her there at this time. But that was the last time she was seen. Tammy's mother went about her day thinking Tammy had made it to school just as she did every day. It wasn't common to call parents when their kid didn't show up to school back when this case took place. So, when 3.30 p.m. rolled around, Tammy's mother called to school to figure out why Tammy wasn't home, only to find out that Tammy never showed up that day. She immediately called the police. Given that Tammy never showed up, the time of which she could have been missing before being reported was at least seven and a half hours. For many days following the report, police and volunteers searched an area of six to eight square miles. The search was aided by police helicopters and boats, and at one point, the FBI and state police looked into as many leads as they could. Nothing could be found. There were reports that she was in a quarry that had become flooded by recent rainfall, but after divers searched, there was still nothing found. Finally, there was a report that she could have been buried in a recently dug grave. When that grave was excavated, they only found the body of the 91-year-old woman that was buried there originally. 
The search continued until the 20th of November before being officially called off. An article published today following this reported, Police Chief Frank Carcello said yesterday he has little hope of finding Tammy L. Bellinger, 8, alive. The investigator acknowledged that the police know little about her disappearance than they did when the schoolgirl was reported missing over a week ago. All this time since, there has been one prime suspect in this case, a man named Victor Winetti. Victor, who was 41 at the time, was staying in a motel near Rye, New Hampshire, the month Tammy went missing. Exeter, where Tammy was taken, is only a 20-minute drive from there. Furthermore, he had been convicted of felonious sexual assaults of a female minor in 1979. That young woman was his 13-year-old stepdaughter. He'd served four years in prison for the crime before being released on parole in July of 1983. This parole was revoked on the 28th of December 1984 by the New Hampshire Parole Board as he left the state without informing his parole officer. It was around this time he became a suspect in not just Tammy's case, but another case out of Green Acres, Florida, which he also had ties to. The girl, who was the same age as Tammy, was named Marjorie Luna, though she also went by Christy. She went missing in May of 1984. Not only were the two girls the same age, they also went missing under very similar circumstances. They were both walking along the street alone, both being fairly close to their home. Victor would pass away in December of 2012 while serving time in a Florida prison for parole violation and burglary. Police still believe him to be the man who committed both of these abductions and are currently looking for any leads that can tie him to being the abductor in both cases. Of course, he can't be convicted, but it will still give those two young women and their families the answers they deserve. If you have any information on either of these cases, call the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663. And of course, you can also email them at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Mike McLean was 29 years old when he went missing from Nashua, New Hampshire. On the night of April 20th, 2019, Mike and a group of his close friends spent some time at the Tropical Lounge at 14 West Hollis Street. While Mike was one of the last people to leave, it has been confirmed that he left around 1.30 a.m. and there was no one with him at the time. There was an initial belief that Mike was involved in an altercation outside the club in one of the parking lots, but it was later confirmed that he was not part of it. Surveillance footage obtained by police showed that Mike was seen around the area in the residence at Riverfront Landing Apartment Complex at 11 Bancroft Street before leaving a parking garage near the back of the complex where he would eventually be out of view from the camera. This was the last known and confirmed sighting and took place around 3.30 in the morning of April 21, 2019. The following day, Mike didn't show up for work at the Easter Seals facility located in Queen City, where Mike worked closely with autistic children. Along with this, his phone was going straight to voicemail. Both of these things were considered very unusual for Mike, and so he was reported missing. For the past 16 months, the police, friends, and family have looked for Mike anywhere they think he could be. From an interviewer with WBZ, Mike's father said, We've been everywhere, near rivers, near underpasses, woods, wooded areas along the highways. 
so forth like that, knocking on doors and questioning businesses and so forth. Police have followed up on every lead that had been sent in, though they note many of them have been false leads. One eyewitness claimed they heard Mike on the phone with someone and reported that Mike sounded very distressed, but I can't find an outlet that verifies this account. One final piece of this puzzle comes in the form of Mike's father, Edward, saying that Mike called his boss just before 2 in the morning on the 21st on East Hollis Street while he made his way to a nearby McDonald's. This is also the last time Mike's phone was pinged with any activity. According to his father, Mike told his boss that they are following me, more than one. The phone cut off soon after, and while she tried to call him back, she couldn't get Mike back on the phone. Adding to the strangeness, Mike also sent three text messages to his neighbor reading, Help, LOL, Hour, What Stood Aloof, and Eldridge, Bro. As of now, this is all that has been released to the public. Police have said they are very cautious on how much information they put out there because they don't want the guilty party to catch on to the investigation. There have also been concerns raised in Mike's family with their communication with other friends of the family and even extended family. Lieutenant Dando Medeiros was interviewed by Patch about the case and explained a little further. The article reads, One of the biggest problems with this investigation, Medeiros said, was that while police had been transparent with the family about the case, that information hasn't gotten out to McLean's many friends and people concerned with the case, probably since the family is not originally from this area. Since the McLean case is an open investigation, police are limited to what they can reveal to the general public. McLean's folks and families aren't too close to his friends, Madero said. We hope that the family would discuss the case with his friends. Mike is 5'10", 190 pounds, and has brown eyes, though I have seen some outlets note he sometimes wore green contacts. There are numerous tattoos across his arms and hands. He was, by all accounts, a sweet and caring person and had a degree in criminal justice. Before I end tonight's video with telling you where to report information, I want to mention two other cases quickly, as the police seem to be lumping Mike's case in with them. First is the young woman, April Bailey, who was last seen near Lynn Street in Nashua on January 15th. According to reports, she was outside taking out the trash at the time. She wasn't reported missing until five days following her disappearance. She was wearing slippers, pajama pants, and a black jacket. Her family noted that while she had suffered from addiction in the past, she'd been sober for quite some time and was described as selfless. Only two days following April's disappearance, a man named Michael Jones went missing from an area near Harbor Avenue. According to friends and family, Michael was staying with close friends at the time, he, much like April, had a history of drug abuse, but was reportedly reaching out to various rehabilitation centers in order to receive help. He was last seen wearing jeans, white sneakers, and a leather coat. At this time, there is nothing else known about his case. These cases all come out of Nashua and seem to be random, but they're often talked about together because of the close proximity of them all. If they're connected or not, we don't know, but I feel like it was important to include all of them. If you have any information about any of these cases, please don't hesitate to report it. You can call the Nashua Police at 603-594-3500, and again, you can email them at coldcaseunit@dos.nh.gov.
want to take a second to say thank you to everyone who took some time out of their day, morning, or evening to listen to these cases tonight. I know the title will probably say three, but there are a lot of cases here. Some of them incredibly recent and incredibly disturbing, to be honest. But that's why we do this, because we need answers. The families need answers, friends need answers, and people need to be brought to justice. We can't forget that. If you uh, want to support the channel, get videos a day in advance, you can become a member or become a patron. Both of those links are down below. And again, like I said at the beginning, if you want to become a part of the Mr. Davis Investigation Agency, just head down to the link and pick you up a t-shirt or a hoodie or whatever. Um, Thanks again, everyone, for hanging out with me tonight. Um, Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And as always, stay safe out there.